you would open your Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 6 as we hear from God's Word, as we listen to the Word of God and open it up and apply it to our lives. We've been working our way passage by passage through Ephesians. We've been looking at doctrine in the first three chapters and life application based on that doctrine in the last three chapters. Application is never without a foundation, a doctrinal biblical foundation. And because of who we are in Christ, Paul is calling us as Christians to live out this profession of faith, to live out this new identity in Christ. Because we've been elected and predestined and regenerated and bought by the blood of Christ and sealed by the Spirit, we are now called to live out that calling, to walk in a manner worthy, he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Not in the way of the world, he says, but in the, in the way of Christ, in the love of Christ, in the wisdom of Christ. And he's been telling us that we ought to be filled by the Holy Spirit. You saw that near the end of chapter 5. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And he gives a list of how to do that. How are you filled with the Spirit? Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We did that this morning. Giving thanks to God in your heart. Hopefully you've done that already and you continue to do that. And then last of all, he says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And he has in mind specific categories, specific relationships. So he starts off with these in pairs. He talks about wives and husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands are submitting to Christ and they're, they're loving their wives as they do so. And we're supposed to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Then he says, children, obey. Obey, submit to your parents and the Lord. And then he turns around the other side and he says, fathers, really speaking to the father and the parents through the father's leadership. And he says, don't provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And now he finishes with this last section here on slaves and masters. Slaves and masters. I've entitled today's sermon, Working as to the Lord. I'll explain how we're going to apply this to our lives today. But slaves and masters. Slaves were a part of the household. So this is often called the household code. Everything from 522 through 6-9. He's addressing these different relationships in the household. So today we're looking at 6-5 through 9. I want to just read this to you. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. With fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart. As to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So Paul is continuing here to deal with these relationships, how we relate to others, Christians and even the world, non-Christians. That's important to God. He doesn't expect us just to say we're saved and then go about living however we want. There are certain duties, certain responsibilities that he calls us to here in the faith and in this text even. You might say, well, we're not slaves today. We don't have slaves and masters. But there is application to be made here. 
By the end of the sermon, I'll make application to the employee and employer relationship. There are some principles to glean from this passage and apply to our life. But first of all, we just have to deal with this issue of slavery and the Bible. You've probably heard some things about this. You probably had some questions about that. What exactly does the Bible say about slavery? And sometimes even unbelievers will say, look, how can you believe in all the Bible says about homosexuality, all those other things, when it affirms slavery, when Paul just mentions slavery? And so you almost have to have an idea of how the Bible handles this topic so you can answer that, so you can give a defense for the faith, so you can discuss that with people. In America, this has been an issue, a topic of conversation for a long time now. It comes and goes, of course, but this is important to understand what the Bible says about a topic that's very heated today. So before we can even get into the text, number one, let's look at slavery and the Bible. Slavery and the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about that? Let's get some background because we don't live in this culture. We don't always know exactly what Paul's talking about here. Slaves made up more than one third of the Roman Empire at this time. One third. Maybe that's as many as 60 million people. Some have even estimated that slaves were half the population. The Romans didn't want to do a lot of work. If you had enough money, then you just wanted to sit back, party, live the, the life of the city of Rome. Go to games, go to the Colosseum, watch people be torn apart. That was the idea of an ideal pagan life. We have the American dream, or the Roman dream back then was to have slaves do everything for you, to have enough money to buy them and, and let them do that, and just enjoy life. Eat, drink, and be merry, as we often see mocked in the Bible, that idea of just sit back and have a good time. Slavery in the first century was vastly different than what we think of in early American uh, version of slavery. It was quite different in ancient times. A wealthy landowner who had many acres of farmland might have hundreds of slaves to work his land. A free Roman citizen, maybe just had a little apartment in the city. You might have one slave or two slaves to take care of the chores around the house. Slavery back then was not based on skin color. Roman slaves came in every shape, color, and size. Dark-skinned Romans from Africa owned pale white-skinned slaves from northern Europe. And many slaves could expect to be released, probably about the middle of their life. They made a little money. Uh, they got paid for their own expenses here and there. And the idea was if they could save up enough money, they might be released. Sometimes slaves were freed just because the owner wanted to free them. And this became so prominent around the New Testament time that Caesar Augustus had to declare that 30 years old was the minimum for slaves to be released, to be emancipated, because there were too many freed slaves running around and they might get together and cause a rebellion in the city. Now, how did a person become a slave though? That's important to think of here because he's addressing slaves that are in the church. They're there with the congregation. How did they become a slave? The most common way was that you were captured in war. Like many of our ancestors, you were in the northern parts of Europe. Rome was attacking that area. They would conquer a barbarian tribe. They would take as many captives back as possible. Often the men were slaughtered and they would take the boys back and take the women back and make them slaves. So that was the most common way to become a slave. Some of the people that are reading this letter in ancient times would have been conquered barbarians who were brought back educated. They were taught to read Greek, taught to read Latin. They worked in the home, and they came to church. They got saved, and now they're in the congregation worshiping. Many slaves could expect to be released later in their life, but often these barbarians were kept throughout their whole lifetime. Now, some people voluntarily sold themselves into slavery. We see that in the Old Testament where you can't pay your debts. And you're either going to starve or you're going to give a contract to somebody to go into slavery for a certain amount of time or maybe the rest of your life. 
Sometimes people sold their children into slavery to pay debts. A few slaves came from rejected babies. So if you didn't want a baby back then, you would just put the baby out on the rocks and let them be exposed to the elements. Eventually let the baby die. They would reject what they thought were imperfect babies. And the Roman fathers could do that. He could just say, I don't want this child. We already have enough girls. This boy has a deformity. Slave traders would come along, pick up the babies, raise them up and sell them. And a few were due to people being captured, kidnapped. The slave traders would go out and kidnap people and then sell them at other places in the empire. Now, slaves did various things. Don't just think of slaves doing hard labor here. There were hard labor slaves. Slaves in the mines, those sent to the mines were often either prisoners or or slaves that were being punished. And life in the mines had a very short lifespan, just a few years because of all the dangers there. Also, hard labor in agricultural settings, raising the crops. But there were also slaves in manufacturing, making of products, clothes, and goods. And then higher up the totem pole really were domestic slaves, slaves that were part of your household. Cornelius and his whole household came to faith and got saved and got baptized. That's not talking about babies when he says household. He's talking about everybody. The whole estate, all the adult slaves even, were saved at that time. So you had domestic slaves. They were trusted and worked closely with their owner's family. Everything from cleaning and cooking to even managing the whole estate. Stewards. Somebody that you've put in charge of your business might be a slave if they were trusted, if they were educated. And many slaves were educated to the point they could serve as doctors, teachers, writers, accountants, agents, bailiffs, overseers, secretaries, and sea captains. Often Greek slaves, those who were sold themselves into bondage in Greece, would be transferred to Rome and they were used as teachers so they could teach the Roman children how to read and learn the Greek language. But as different as ancient slavery was from what we think of as American slavery, it still was the same in that a person was being owned. They were property of their masters. The master had complete control over what the slave did, where the slave lived, who the slave married. And it was no cakewalk to be a slave. Sure, if you're a doctor, that might sound great. But realize if your patient dies and that patient is important, you're going to die as well, more than likely. If you were serving the emperor and something bad happened to him, he would say off with your hands or off with your head. Wealthy people are recorded in history as abusing their slaves. Uh, The rich and powerful of Rome would whip their slaves, would kill their slaves whenever the slave made the slightest remark that didn't make the person happy. Now this type of abuse of slaves is why God put in the Old Testament laws and regulations about slavery. It was just a fact of the world at the time. And so God has put laws to regulate it in the Old Testament. Slavery wasn't in the Garden of Eden. Slavery wasn't there before the fall. God didn't create slavery. Slavery comes from man's sinful desire to rule over people, to own other people. But it was part of the ancient world. And so God puts laws into place to protect slaves. He puts laws into place that let slaves go free. He tells the Israelites they can't own slaves of their own people. And if they do, they have to set them free after a time. So we come to passages like Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21, 16. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. It's one thing for somebody to sell themselves into slavery or be captured in war. It's another thing for an Israelite to go out and capture people and sell them into slavery. That person shall be put to death. Much of what we saw in 
17th, 18th, 19th century America and, and England was this idea of capturing, capturing people in Africa and bringing them to the United States. That was wrong, even according to the Old Testament. Exodus 21, 26, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. If he knocks out a tooth, the same thing. You hurt your slave, you've just set them free. You lose your temper and hurt them, they're now free. In Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, all slaves were released. The year of Jubilee, it's, it's the year of celebration. It's the year to set the captives free. And when a pagan slave ran away from his Canaanite master, Deuteronomy 23.15 says, You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst, in the place where he shall choose in one of your own towns where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. Slave runs away. He comes in. He wants to be part of the people of God. God says, you don't send him back. You don't put him back in slavery. You let him live with you. Let him stay there. Now, Paul in Ephesians is not advocating for slavery. That's a big accusation against this passage. Paul's saying, hey, you should go out and have slaves. Obviously, that's not what he's saying. Like the Old Testament, he's giving principles. He's given regulations, duties, things that are supposed to happen in that relationship. But let's, let's know the scriptures. Let's know what the Bible says about this, even in the New Testament. Now remember, when he spoke of marriage, what did he point back to? He said that was in the creation. That was the way that God had designed it. Man and woman. Man shall leave his mother and father, and the two shall become one. He shall be one with his wife. When he talked about parents, when he talked about children, he said, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. What's he talking about when he says it is right? He's talking about creation. That's the way God designed it. So in marriage, he appeals to creation. Then he comes to parents and, and children. He appeals to creation. Did you notice any appeal to creation here with slavery? Do you see anything in this text here that says this is the way God designed it? You don't see it at all. He just assumes it's there and he deals with it and says this is how a Christian should respond in this relationship. So in this section, he doesn't appeal to creation. It's not God's design. And he often spoke of slavery as an accepted norm of the day, but said that Christians should hope to be free of it. Remember that book written to Philemon? A slave owner? And remember what he says to Philemon about his slave Onesimus? He says, accept this former slave who ran away. Welcome him back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A brother in Christ. He's urging Philemon to set his slave free that ran away and met, met Paul in Rome. Go to 1 Corinthians 7 with me. Go back to 1 Corinthians 7, 21. Paul addresses this. It's funny to me that people could even claim that Paul is in support of slavery. He addresses this very clearly here. 1 Corinthians 7, 21. Were you called while a slave? Did you become a Christian while you were a slave? Do not worry about it. In other words, don't, don't think you can't be a Christian because you're a slave. Don't think you're too low on the totem pole. Don't think you're, you're at the bottom of society, the bottom caste. You can't be saved. Don't make a fuss about it. Don't worry about that. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. If you're able to buy back your freedom, if you're able to, to get free, then do it. That's better, he says. Verse 22, for he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. So even though you're, you're a slave on this earth, you're free, in one way of speaking, towards the Lord. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. So even those who are free are still slaves to Christ. 
So we're equal, in other words, before Christ. He's saying, look, if you can be free, then be free. Paul supports that. But it was not the role of Christians to raise up and cause a rebellion against their masters. He doesn't tell them to overthrow their masters. He doesn't tell them to start a revolution. Did Christ come to start a revolution? That's exactly what the Pharisees wanted. That's what the people were calling him to do. They would have loved it if he started a rebellion, even about slavery. They would have loved it if Christians had done that. The emperor would have enjoyed that too, because he could have wiped them out rather quickly. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10. And here Paul mentions this idea of kidnapping. He brings it forward uh, from the Old Testament, 1 Timothy 1.10. He's making a list, a list of those who are against the law, against the word of God. And immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers, literally man-stealers here. Those who kidnap people to sell them as slaves. He goes on, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Those things are against the Bible. To kidnap somebody and sell them. Man-stealers. They're against Scripture. This is a list. A list of people who are going to spend eternity in hell unless they repent. Yet, the Bible does not outright reject slavery. The Bible does not outright say it should disappear immediately. Nor does it command a violent overthrow. Nor does it make excuses for slavery. It's just there. Like so many things in the ancient world. It's there. God makes regulations. He makes laws. He makes ways that they can become free. What Paul and the the rest of the New Testament has to say about slavery will eventually cause the abolishing of slavery. It will disappear. You know why? Because of Christianity. Why did it disappear from the Roman Empire? Because there were so many Christians. And even the emperor had become Christian and the leaders. And eventually they abolished it. It wasn't right to own another person. And then later in medieval times, it was the same thing. But certain people got the idea, but hey, we can go get some pagans. Then that's okay if they become slaves. It's just Christians we're not supposed to own. So you see that coming in with the the Slavic peoples when they're going out and grabbing them when they're unbelievers. Then the, the Slavic peoples become Christians. So then they go to Africa and they start bringing pagans from Africa to different places around the world. But again, it was Christianity, Wilberforce, and England that had led the movement to set slaves free. Well, that's what the Bible has to say about slavery. It's just a really a quick tour through Scripture. And what God's saying here through the Apostle Paul is, is more important than anything in this world. He's not just talking about the relationships we have right here, right now. But he's saying this is an eternal matter. This is an eternal subject. This has something to do with Christ. He's speaking to both slaves and masters directly and reminding them of how their faith should change the way they live. We are here now until Christ comes back or we die. And our faith should change us and it should change the way we live. And of course, that has eternal implications. Charles Hodge wrote, as both sides treated one another in this Christian manner back in the first century here in the church. He said, first the evils of slavery and then slavery itself would pass away as naturally and as healthfully as children cease to be minors. So Paul's not calling for the overthrow of it, but eventually will happen. Will happen multiple times throughout world history, mostly because of Christianity spreading. Now let's apply, though, this text. How are we going to work through this text and apply it to our lives today? We don't have slavery in America. There's there's still the issue of uh, sex slavery, people being sold as sexual slaves around the world, unfortunately. We should pray for that. We should seek to aid people who are helping to put a stop to it. But how do we apply this to our lives? Well, an easy application would be to those who are in prison, 
because they've lost their freedom. Let's say they get saved. They have guards over them. They have wardens over them. They have to obey. But since we're not in prison right now, we have to think of another way to apply this as well. Those in the military have voluntarily given up some of their freedom to live and, and do as they please. They're under command. They're told sometimes to do certain things in their life. But for most of us, it's going to be our work environment. If we are employers employing others, then we're similar in a sense to masters. And if we're employees working for someone else, then these same principles that apply to slaves would apply to us. Now, some will say, well, it's, that's not an exact match. We can't do that. I think it's reasonable. We do that all the time. We take principles from things that no longer exist in our culture today, and, and we apply them. It's the principle that matters. The Old Testament is full of principles that we apply, don't we, to our life today. We're not under the Mosaic law. We're under the law of Christ. We're under the new covenant, but yet we apply those same principles we learn there to today. So that's really all of number one, just covering the background there of slavery in the Bible. Now let's dig into the text. Number two, biblical principles for employees. The commands we see in, in verses five through eight, the commands to slaves uh, teach us how a Christian ought to relate to those over them in the workplace. Certainly if it applies to, to slaves in that environment, we can take some principles and apply them to the workplace today. This applies to you if you have a boss. You can even make application if you're self-employed and doing work for others. In a sense, your customers that you're working for are sort of temporarily anyway, a master over you in some ways. Verse 5, slaves. We'll just stop there. Slaves. What is a slave? A doulos is the Greek word. And it always means slave in the New Testament. It's a state of being completely controlled by someone or something. That's amazing that slaves are at the church. It's amazing that, that slaves are there worshiping. It tells you either their master is also saved and bringing them, or there's some level of freedom that slaves had in that day to go to church. Some level of freedom to go and worship. He said, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Curios is the word for masters. It means Lord according to the flesh. You're, you're serving your Lord, he's saying, according to the flesh. Now, Christ is our ultimate Lord, so we don't like to use that term Lord for any kind of human masters. But in those days, they understood you had, you had earthly lords, and then you had ultimately the one Lord over you in heaven. And he says, be obedient to your lords in the flesh, on the earth. Obey them. Obey means to follow, to follow their instructions, to be subject to them, to do what they say. Slaves were expected to obey their masters. This is not what's unique. That was common in the ancient world. Of course, slaves are told to obey their masters. But what Paul does here is surprising here. He says the way they ought to obey them. And all of these issues are really going to be heart issues that we're going to look at. There's six of them. They're heart attitudes or six principles. Obey them. Have the right godly motivations. If you're a Christian slave, do this, Paul says. And I would say to you, if, if you're a Christian and you're working for somebody else, apply these same principles to your life, to your work. Now, the only exceptions, of course, would be if the boss asks you to do something immoral, something sinful. A, a, a believing child has unbelieving parents, and the unbelieving parents ask the child to do something sinful. They can't. The same with husband and wife relationship. If it's in the Word of God, if it's contrary to Scripture, don't do it. So let's look at these six principles. Obey. Do, do what the master says. Do what the boss says. Do what the, your manager says. First of all, with fear and trembling. Follow what your boss says. Do, do what you're told to do and work with fear and trembling. 
This fear here is reverence to those in authority over you. It's the same word used back at the end of chapter 5 when Paul summarizes how a wife should respect. Your translation probably says respect. The real word there is fear. But it's kind of a reverential fear. It's the idea that you fear them because they are in authority over you. And God has put them in authority over you. You could lose your job. You could get in trouble. You could get a dock and pay. That could affect your family. And back then as a slave, you were subject to many other things. It says fear and trembling. Trembling here speaks of a concern for what will happen if you do something wrong. If you sin by not doing what you're told to do. Lazy slaves are lazy workers today. He summarizes this in 1 Timothy 6.1. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. You're supposed to have a reverence for your, your employer. For your boss. For your manager. Because it says something about God. If you say, I'm a Christian. And then you don't do what they tell you. You just do your own thing. You disobey. Do what you want. You act lazy. Spend your time how you want to. Well, that's not looking good for God. It's not looking good for Christ. It makes Christ look bad, doesn't it? Employers should be respected. As a, as a Christian, you are representing Christ at work. We live in a very prideful age. In an age where people don't think anyone should tell them what to do. Even when they go and work at a job, they just think, they are all blessed that I'm here working today. I don't have to do what anybody says. And many of us experience bad customer service that's exactly like that. I was just at a restaurant the other day with my daughter for lunch. And this person checking us out was annoyed that I was asking about things on the menu. And I said, you know, does this salad have cheese in it? I'm allergic to dairy. I don't know. I've never eaten that salad, she said. And I thought, well, if anybody knows it's you, I don't know who else. Maybe the manager. He wasn't much help either. But it's a prideful age, an age where it's hard to find good help if you're hiring. And it's hard to keep it. And we live in an age where people don't respect their employers. So your application for this one would be, are you showing honor and respect to the person or organization that pays you? Even if it's your customer and you own your own business. Are you respecting them? Do you have a type of respect, of reverence for them? As a follower of Christ, you shouldn't badmouth them. You shouldn't backbite them. You shouldn't undermine your managers or, or the, the person over you's authority. That's wrong. That's not Christ-like. Now, many Christians might say, well, what if my boss isn't a Christian? Well, we've already talked about if, if they ask you to sin, don't do it. Other than that, you're supposed to do what they say. That's, that's part of the job. 1 Peter 2.18 deals with this. There he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Respect them. That's the place that God has put you. Now today we have freedom to take another job if we don't, if we don't like it. But back then, he's telling these slaves, respect them, even if they're not gentle with you. Number two, the second principle that we can take from this, as that we ought to obey them with sincerity of heart as to Christ. This idea with sincerity of your heart that he mentions here in the text is a singleness of purpose, a singleness of motivation, a personal integrity expressed in word or action. That means do it from the heart. The heart is the center of your life in the Bible. It's your inner self. Do it with all your might. Work. You ought to be single-minded in your focus, on your duties. Carry everything you do out with integrity. No distractions. No stealing. No, no bad-mouthing at the water cooler. No talking bad about those over you. Don't be distracted. How can you be focused on a single thing if you're distracted by everything going on? Other people talking to you. Social media. 
The internet, it's an endless distraction. Your phone, he's saying, let your heart be innocent when it comes to your work. Be pure in your intentions. You represent the Lord Jesus. Focus. Be single-minded. Doesn't mean you can't take breaks. There's breaks, then take breaks. Doesn't mean you can't do other things, but it means that you should be working when you're at work, when you're supposed to work. And sometimes Christians say, well, I'm evangelizing. No, you're just talking. Evangelize on your breaks, your lunch breaks, afterwards, invite them to church, whatever. Don't waste time having these long, drawn-out theological debates with your co-workers when you should be working. Don't gossip. That's not a singleness of purpose from the heart. You're, you're serving your boss as you're serving Christ. You're serving your customer like you would serve Christ. It's as to Christ. And gossip, gossiping about other people at your workplace, people you work with, your boss, your manager, your, your company... Even if it's true, it's gossip. Don't do that. Number three, starting in verse six now. Third one is not just to make a good impression. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers. Not by way of eye service. Probably a word Paul made up. He combines two Greek words talking about eye service. These are men pleasers. These are people pleasers. The word here is service that is performed only to make an impression in the owner's presence. The master's presence. The slave only works hard when the master's watching. Other times he's lazy, doing whatever he wants. It's, it's talking about obedience, not just outwardly, but inwardly. Inwardly desiring to do your best like you were serving Christ. You are serving Christ. It's how a person behaves when the master turns his back, Paul's saying, even when he's not watching. It's just as important. It's just as important than when he's there. Don't just obey at work when somebody's watching you. That's a, that's a terrible way to do work. It's a terrible way to do things. Just obeying when somebody's watching, when the boss comes, when the principal comes, when, when various people come to watch you. First Timothy 6.2, those who have believers as their masters. Paul's saying, if you're a slave and you have a believer as your master, that's probably the best situation to be in if you're a slave, must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren. You see, the problem is the slave and master are equal in front of Christ. And, and the slave would tend to be disrespectful. Hey, we're equal to Christ. I can do what I want. But Paul says, no, he must serve them all the more. Because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Because they're a believer, you should work even harder for them. So if you have a believing boss or even a customer that you're serving in your business, you ought to serve them all the more because they're believers. Not think, hey, you know, they'll understand. I can sit here and read Calvin's Institutes all day for the next month. They'll understand. How are you working when no one's watching? Where do you spend your time when no one's watching? What are you doing when people aren't looking? Are you being lazy? Are you on social media all day? Are you talking about nothing important at work? The Lord's aware of everything we do. And if our hearts aren't serving Him as we do our jobs, then we're not giving 100%. Or we're not serving like we should. And if you're younger here today and you haven't maybe uh, done much work, Remember these principles. Apply them as you grow, as you work, as you even work in the home. You're serving the Lord. Number four, as slaves of Christ. Number four, slaves of Christ. Well, this is, this is offensive to a lot of modern people right here. Slaves of Christ. Again, the same word that we saw back in verse five. Doulos. We are slaves of Christ. He is our Lord. He is our master. And, and that is what God inspired this text to say. We are slaves. All of us. You might say, not today. We're not slaves in America. 
We're slaves of Christ. That hasn't changed. There might not be slaves and masters today, but there are slaves of Christ, I hope. That's what we are here. I know many translations today say servant here and back in verse 5. But the word doesn't mean servant. A servant is somebody employed. Uh, is somebody hired. Is somebody who has some freedoms. It's somebody who does domestic duties or a personal attendant. They didn't have servants back then. They had slaves and they had freedmen that you could hire to come in and do a job, but then they would go away. Or maybe you could hire a freedman to stay in your home and, and manage it, but that was a freedman, not a servant like we think of today. So if your translation says servant here, most likely the translators decided to soften it for the modern readership. You can go online, you can type in the word slave in the Bible, and you can look up the reasons why, according to your translation. They would say it's too offensive to modern readers, especially in the United States. We don't like to think of ourselves as slaves of anyone, especially in Texas. This is the independent state. I'm not a slave. You're a slave of Christ if you're a believer. And we should like it. I think the translation is important right here because it conveys to us who we really are in Christ. See, a servant can come and go. You can change jobs. You can change masters. Not a slave. They're owned. They're bought. They're paid for. They're property. We're property of Christ. We're his possession. He's our master. And we have to do what he says without complaint. That's why Paul says we're slaves of Christ. As slaves of Christ, we obey Christ. We don't complain. We don't cause a big fuss with him. We ought to do the same, Paul says, if you're a slave. Or you ought to do the same at your work. While being a slave of another person is not something we wish for, it's a perfect description here of who we are with Christ. He's our master. He's our Lord. We're fine with calling him master and Lord, but we don't understand the other part of that relationship is the fact that we're his slave. It's a good thing. We should welcome that. We don't have to be thankful for the institution of slavery, to be thankful for the the word analogy that helps us see who we are with Christ. John MacArthur wrote a whole book on this. It's called Slave. He says the New Testament commands believers to submit to Christ completely, not just as hired servants or spiritual employees, but those who belong wholly to him. We are told to obey Christ without question and follow him without complaint. Jesus Christ is our master, a fact we acknowledge every time we call him Lord. We are his slaves called to humbly and wholeheartedly obey and honor him. It's a great book, by the way. I recommend you pick it up. It goes through the All the occurrences are most of the major ones. Jesus talks about slaves and the parables. And you know that famous passage, well done, good and faithful slave. It's not servant. It's the same word here. It's for slave. We want to hear that when we get to heaven. Well done, good and faithful slave. Even back in Charles Spurgeon's day, the the King James changed it to servant. So he says, where the King James, this is Spurgeon, where the King James softly puts it servant, it really is bond slave. The early saints delighted to count themselves Christ's absolute property, bought by him, owned by him, and wholly at his disposal. We're slaves of Christ. And in this relationship where we're serving our earthly bosses, our earthly employers, even our customers, we've got to be to them just like we would serving Christ. To do our best, to do what's right, just, fair. We're slaves, his slaves. Number five. With pure motives. With pure motives. Obey your masters, he says, doing the will of God from the heart. That's with pure motives. And really, it's, it's not the same word for heart that we've already seen in this passage. It's literally soul here, suke. With your soul, with everything that you are. The heart's more like your, your inner being. 
Your soul indicates everything. So your inner being should be focused single-mindedly. And here he's saying, with your whole self, do the will of God from your soul. Believers have to live out their faith in the will of God as they work. You know how hard it was for those slaves to do it? Knowing that even if they did a good job, they might be whipped at the end of the day. And yet here we are, not concerned about that at work, but we're not doing it with our whole soul. He's telling them wholehearted obedience. That's God's will. It's the will of God. Do the will of God with everything that you are. It's God's will. We're to live out the rest of the time in the flesh, Paul says. For, uh, Peter says, 1 Peter 4, 2. Live out the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And then in Romans 12, you probably know this one. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. You want people to see God working in your life? We should tell them about Christ, of course. You can also and should be living it out in your life. Show them. A lot of people around here call themselves Christians. They don't know what the will of God is. They think the will of God is whatever they want to do. And you can show them the will of God as you work for them. As you're living a godly life before them and serving them. Are you doing the will of God when you work for your employer? Are you serving them like you should? Number six, with a good attitude. This is a sixth and final one for the employee with a good attitude. This is verses seven and eight. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men. This, this word goodwill is a positive attitude exhibited in a relationship, a good attitude, a willingness to do it. It was commonly used in ancient times of a diplomatic document that had positive attitudes displayed by a person, a city, or a state. So if you wanted to show goodwill in your document, sending it to someone else, maybe it was a, a treaty, negotiation, they would use this word. Another dictionary says it's a state of zeal based upon a desire to be involved in some activity. It's a good attitude. It's a, it's a zealous attitude. It's an attitude that I really want to serve this person. I want to serve them. I want to do it in a godly way. I, go, I want to have a good attitude. And he says, Obey your masters with a good attitude, no matter what. No matter what. Obey your employer with a good attitude, no matter what. Do you have a good attitude at work? Do you enjoy your work? Do you want to do your work? If not, then change your attitude or find another job. Because Paul says we ought to have a good attitude. And he even gives a reason. Okay, why, Paul? Because you can be rewarded, he says, knowing, verse 8, that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. See, that's why it can apply to us today. Slave or free, doesn't matter. These same principles apply. Each one of us as believers are going to appear before the Lord someday. We're going to appear before the Lord for judgment. As a believer, yeah, for judgment. Not eternal hellfire and damnation, but the rewards judgment. What's called the bema seat judgment, because that's the Greek word used in the text. Let's look at it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're going to be rewarded or not based on all that you do in life, how you use your time, how you use your, your money, how you work for your employer. 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear, all of us, everyone that's a believer, is going to appear before the judgment seat the Bema seat here, it's different than the judgment seats mentioned like in Revelation. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. 
according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Because it's Christ we're serving, Paul says, there's rewards. If we have a good attitude, if we, if we serve the person we're working for, the company we're working for, there's blessings eternally. Maybe not in this life. Often there is increased pay, better, better position. But eternally there's rewards. Eternally there's rewards. And he's not just saying as in heaven in general. He's not saying earn your salvation. He's talking to believers. See, the epistles are written to churches. They already claim to be believers. And he's saying, serve them with a good attitude. There's going to be a reward when you come before Christ. Not just the general reward of heaven, but what you do for eternity. Where you live, maybe. We, we don't know exactly what that looks like. You can read last two chapters of the Bible and, and start to get a picture of it. But there's going to be rewards. Even the lowest slaves in the Roman Empire could serve the Lord as he served his master. The lowest slave. And because of it, he could look forward to being free for eternity and getting rewarded. Now let's look at the other side of it. Let's look at verse 9. Major point number 3. Biblical principles for employers or even managers. Anybody who has people under them in a work type setting. First of all, do good for your employees. Verse 9, and masters do the same things to them. Now he's not saying exactly as a slave would do. Now the master is supposed to become the slave of the slave. He's picking up on this last point. Do the same things. He's just told them what? To have a good attitude because of rewards. Have a good attitude because you're serving Christ when you're serving your employer, when you're serving your master. And now he's telling masters in the church to do good, to have a good attitude toward his slaves. To do good for them. To look out for their best interests. To help them. Because masters will be judged as well. And employers will be judged before Christ as well. Even in a big corporation where it seems like there's not one person. But there are people. There's a board. There's a president. They will be judged as well if they're Christians. Or rewards judgment. If they're unbelievers, they'll be judged for their sin. But here he's speaking to believers. Believing masters. Believing employers. You've got to do the best for those who work for you. That starts with being a good example of a Christian. You want to do good for your employees, then show them what a Christian looks like. Maybe they're unbelievers. Maybe they've never been around a Christian, worked with them that closely. Show them what that looks like. Live a Christ-like life. Maybe they're believers and they're just confused. We've got a lot of confused Christians these days. They need to see what a godly person looks like that's an employer. Are you doing right for your workers? Are you doing right for the people under you, the people you manage? How are you serving them? You can pay them fairly. Colossians 4.1 is kind of a, a sister text to this. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. Now that would have been unheard of in the ancient world. Justice and fairness? Knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Sometimes if you own your own company, or you're the president, you're high up. You think, I don't really answer to anybody. You answer to the Lord. You answer to the Lord. He says right there, you have a master in heaven. Pay them. Justice. Fair. What's fair? What, what do they need to live off of? What's a fair pay for the work they do? Their skill set? Their education? It's not right to pay somebody barely enough to live on. What about benefits? Do they need benefits? Is that typical for this industry? Seek their good in whatever way. Help them to grow. If they're a Christian, help them to grow. Get them in a good church. Pray with them even. Of course, pray for their salvation too if they're unbelievers. Number two, employers should not use threats. Don't use threats. Don't use threats. Give up threatening, he says, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. 
Roman masters had powerful authority and lawful authority. They could even kill their slaves and in most cases would not be punished. Later, they're going to enact laws in the Roman Empire to try to put a stop to this. But the emperor was always the worst. He would kill slaves just for the fun of it. And Paul says, don't threaten. You're a believer. Don't threaten those under you. Don't abuse your authority. He's changing here the worldly way of acting. He says masters ought to stop their threats because they have a master in heaven. They serve a master in heaven. And if it's a believing slave and a believing master, they're both serving the same one. That's Christ. And if you're a Christian or you're an employer or you're a Christian worker, either way, you're serving the same master. Don't motivate with threats. That doesn't help. Motivate with good things. Motivate with rewards if you're over people. If they do a good job and work hard for you, you're going to reward them. You're going to share in the blessings that your company benefits from. You're going to help them. Maybe you're not the that person that could help them get a better job in the company, but you can speak a good word for them instead of threatening, instead of trying to use threats to make them work harder. Thirdly, employers need to avoid favoritism. Managers need to avoid favoritism because Paul says to the master here, there's no partiality with him. God's not partial, whether slave or free. We have the same identity in Christ before God. There's no partiality. And then he's saying to the master, don't, don't be partial to these slaves over these slaves. Don't give them all the good stuff and these guys get nothing. Don't do that in work. Don't play favorites. God's not a respecter of persons. Sometimes we don't want to give people the same benefits or give people the same rewards for working hard. Sometimes we give people more rewards if we like them better. Not based on how hard they work. This is a clear command that Paul gives here to these slaves and masters. He's trying to show them what it means to be in a godly relationship. And we ought to apply these things as well in our work environment. To our work environment. You're going to find yourself in one of these situations more than likely. You're going to hire somebody. Or you're going to be the person being hired. How are you going to work? Are you going to work like you're working for the Lord Jesus? Are you just going to do what you want? Do what the culture thinks. Get away with whatever you can get away with today. And they've shown that. Most people working today don't even work the full time they're supposed to be working. So much time is spent doing other things. Let's work as we're working for the Lord. Let's serve whoever we're working for. I I work for the church. The elders tell me what to do. I'm serving you. I'm serving our church. We're all serving someone. We're all serving the Lord. And then God has put these different structures in place on this earth. And we need to submit to them. So let's do that. If you're not in Christ today, then you can't do these things. You can't if you're not in Christ. If you're not a believer, don't take this as a, as a good message on how to have success in business. Don't take this as a way to get a raise, get a job. You need to trust in Christ. He's talking to Christians. If you're not in Christ, you can't do this. Your sin weighs upon you. You have wrath upon you. Stop trying to earn your way by doing these things we just talked about and submit to Christ. Focus on that master. Repent. Confess your sins. Turn to him in faith. And then you can start doing these things. As soon as you confess, as soon as you're converted, as soon as God gives you a new heart of faith, trust in Christ, your life will be different. It will. And certainly your eternity will be different. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for teaching us today, teaching us from your word. Your word does not leave us void. We're not left without any kind of uh, answers for life. We know that you teach us all that we need to know to live a godly life, a righteous life, a holy life. Help the members of this church, Lord, to be godly in their work environments and their work relationships. 
Let us show people Christ through our work. Let us show people how we love the Lord and want to serve Him. And we're serving them because we love Jesus, because He is our master and we're His slave. Pray, Lord, that you would impress that upon us. Help us to leave this place and to serve even better because of this message. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.